Craft Beer Radio presents the 2012 Saver Salons. For the fifth year, we recorded the salons at Saver. This year, there were 18 in all, six educational salons and 12 private tasting salons. You can find all the Saver podcasts, including ones from the past five years, all on our website at craftbeerradio.com. The Terror of Terroir, featuring Will Myers of the Cambridge Brewing Company, talking about his terroir and how it pairs with wine, beer, and cheese. Good evening, everybody. I am Carolyn Smigalski, the Beer Fox. I'm a beer writer, a freelance beer writer, and the editor of Beer and Brewing at Bella Online, the voice of women on the internet. I write at beerlovers.com and a lot of magazines that you've probably seen, like Beer Connoisseur, Philly Beer Scene, and Zymergy, and so forth. Uh, Saver is brought to you by the Brewers Association, which is the trade association it's a national association for small and independent craft brewers across the United States. Among the many activities that the Brewers Association hold besides Savor is, has anybody heard of this one, the Great American Beer Festival in Denver? Anybody been there? Ah, a few. You have a few more people who need to get out there, it seems. And also, they are publishers of craftbeer.com. Tonight, we have a lot of supporters who've helped make Savor possible. So if you'll bear with me a minute, it's Ray's Beverage Group, Abita Brewing Company, Brewery Omegong, Dogfish Head Craft Brewery, Sam Adams, craftbeer.com. Have you heard of any of those? <laughs> okay. And then also Allagash Brewing Company, Boulevard Brewing, The Brooklyn Brewery, Devil's Backbone, Flying Dog Ales, Full Sail, New Belgium, Rogue Ales and Saranac, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, The Brewers Supply Group, Draft Magazine, GreatBrewers.com, National Beer Wholesalers Association, Oak Beverages and Spiegelow, and you are welcome to take the Spiegelow glasses with you after this, if you would like to do so. All of these Saver Salons are recorded for podcast listening by craftbeerradio.com, and they'll be available to, for listening after the event. I'll be up here in the front. If you uh, get, have any questions, please flag me down, and I'll bring the mic to you, or you're welcome to come and stand up at the mic for your 30 seconds of fame. Now tonight, we have the terror of terroir, and we have a very special person here tonight, from the brewmaster from Cambridge Brewing Company, Will Myers. He started at Cambridge Brewing in 1993 under the tutelage of head brewer Daryl Goss and brew daddy Phil Bannatyne. And now he is the brewmaster of Cambridge Brewing Company. He is brilliant, and he's a fantastic brewer. He does all kinds of things, from Berliner Weiss and American Barley Wine to the um, Gruet Ales, Hybrid Sake Ales. And we're going to hand over the mic to him now. Please welcome... Brewmaster of Cambridge Brewing, Will Myers. Hi, guys. Thanks. Welcome to this entirely civilized beer and cheese pairing event. Um, I did want to put a theme to it, and, uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to 
engaging any questions or comments throughout uh, if anybody wants to interrupt and, and add a comment or ask a question or whatever, just do so. Uh, I encourage you to pop up and use the microphone uh, just to make it easier for the sound tech guys. Um, the first beer that we're going to enjoy is called Weekapal Gruet. And uh, while that's being poured out, I want to look, kind of reiterate the, the theme that I, that I based these pairings around. Uh, and that's the idea of terroir, something that winemakers have, uh, especially over the last few decades, really kind of claimed an exclusive right to, uh, to use of that term. Um, a winemaker will explain that the, the fermentation of the grape is the truest expression of soil, of fruit, of weather conditions. Um, and, uh, and because of the, uh, the American beer scene throughout the, the mid to late 20th century, which became more heavily industrialized, they, they kind of won that argument. Uh, that's not to say that there weren't and aren't still lots and lots of huge industrial-scale wineries uh, that are just as automated uh, and just as robotic as some of the largest breweries in the country. But there are also a lot more garagiste wineries opening up, a lot more craftspeople involved in, in really, uh, really working on, on the, the fruit and the production of the wine by hand. Um, Part of the reason that I feel confident that I can tackle the, the idea of, of terroir uh, working with beer and uh, perhaps even better with beer than wine in many cases is because I'm also an amateur winemaker. So I've got uh, about 10 years of experience running a little uh, 100 case a year clandestine winery in the woods and the property of a friend of mine who's got a little cabin uh, and we have a, a good time making a, a really nice different wine every year. So. That said, uh, you know, what, what we're really talking about with terroir, and we'll get more into this over the course of the hour, is the expression of ingredients and environment. Uh, winemakers tend to remove themselves to a certain extent and say, oh, this, this fabulous expression of wine is, is, is a great expression of the minerality in the, the soil, the, 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 the wind-swept hill that it's on, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, of course, when it's a great great vintage, they take credit for being the genius behind it. Um, to their credit, they're also lucky because they have a really easy out. If the wine sucks, they can say, oh, the weather was terrible that year. Brewers, though, because we're dealing with, uh, with a grain that can be harvested and, uh, and stored, as opposed to grapes that need to be harvested and fermented immediately, we're able to produce our, our, our products, our, our beers, throughout the year. Um, so we have to deal more with seasonal differences uh, and attempting to make a consistent product uh, on a regular basis. So we have our own set of challenges, but that in no way diminishes the, the extent to which uh, the, the, the soil, the weather, the growing conditions and, and seasons affect the production of our beer. So we'll get into that. The first beer that you have is called Weekapal Gruet. Um, for, for any... Uh, experimental rock music fans in the audience. It is a reference to a song by the rock band Fish. Uh, there's no denying that one. Um, but I could also say it refers to a beach in Rhode Island if anybody gives me a hard time of it. Um, the Weekapaw Gruet is a, a pretty interesting beer. Um, I wanted to, to send it out first just to, to put everybody on their toes because some of you might not like this at all. Some of you might actually find it rather cool even if you've never tried a beer like it before. There are no hops in this beer. 
Most beers are made with malted grains, water, yeast, and hops. And Gruitz are basically what beer was for thousands of years up through the Middle Ages before hops became the dominant herb used in beer production. Now, just so we can get right into the pairing, this is paired with the Jasper Hill Alpha Tolman, which is their first foray into the Alpine-style cheeses. And uh, I suppose if we want to set this up with the, uh, the long, skinny cheese with the cherry to its right, that would be the Tolman at the top. So we'll put that one at the 12 o'clock position. That should, I think, put the, uh, the two white-rinded cheeses going east and west. Uh, with the quince on the left and the cherries on the right, and then we have uh, honey as a, as a side and also some really nice toasted Marcona almonds. The, uh, the Gruet and the Tolman I, I chose as a specific pairing because the Gruet's kind of herbal and, and funky and a little bit strange. My first impression was we should pair funky and strange with funky and strange, but what really worked with this beer was having a nice clean cheese with a little bit of nuttiness and a little grass character in it just to kind of offset some of the, the stronger herbal characters in the beer. Um, so Gruet is a beer made with herbs, and they're traditionally uh, a blend of three herbs, uh, yarrow, sweet gale, and a wild type of rosemary. Uh, bears nothing like the, uh, the culinary rosemary that we're all familiar with. It's actually rather medicinal, uh, and I'm not a fan of it. I only use a tiny little bit of it for the, the sake of tradition. To it, we've also added wild licorice root, uh, a little bit of an herb called sweet flag. There's uh, also some stinging nettle or, or fresh green nettles. And uh, there is a little bit of fresh ginger, which uh, when I had this beer recently, uh, the ginger was really kind of coming out in the nose a little bit. What I like a lot about making Gruet beers um, is that you could change up the, the different herbs. Some of them can be really earthy and pungent. Some can be high and spicy and, and warm. Uh, some of them can be really citrusy and bright, but they all change over time, just like any beer or any wine or, or even any cheese is going to mature as it ages. So uh, when it's fresh, you get a lot of kind of a spicy, almost a eucalyptus-y uh, character from the sweet gale. Over time, the ginger comes out. A little, uh, a little while later, the, the ginger will kind of die off, but you'll get a little bright uh, green tea-like character, like a Japanese sencha. Um, all of those kind of evolve not only in the glass as you enjoy it and as it warms up and the carbonation remove, uh, releases the aromas, but also as the bottle ages over time. This is only a little 5.5% alcohol beer, but I found that it actually keeps for years and years uh, and, is, and is really just kind of cool as it gets older. Um, it tastes like a lot more than 55 Yeah, it's, it's, it's got some body to it. But it's very it. it's, refreshing, it's do you think? Anybody not partial to this? I'm just curious to see. Please don't be shy. Raise your hand if, if you're not a fan. Everybody in the We've room likes this beer. Really I don't believe group. you. Good group. Good group. Um, so the question was, what kind of yeast did we use in the, uh, in the beer? And we actually used a Belgian style of yeast um, that, uh, that's kind of our house strain. It's actually a, a yeast strain that I absconded with from a, a brewery in Amsterdam many years ago, and we've been using it for a decade and a half at Cambridge Brewing Company. Um, we let this beer ferment really, really hot. In other words, we use no temperature controls whatsoever. Uh, during the brewing process, uh, when we're about to add the yeast and allow it to begin to ferment, we knock it out, as it's called, or transfer it out of the kettle at a pretty cool temperature in the low 60s. 
but then we turn off any temperature controls. And as the, uh, as the yeast ferments, it builds up heat. It gives off heat, all fermentations do. Um, so we just let that temperature rise and rise and rise, which creates a whole lot of fruit and spice in the, uh, in the aroma. And uh, the, the length of time that it's at certain temperatures will, will really allow that yeast strain to express. Is there a certain time of year that you make this gruit, Al? Uh, you know, we tend to make this in the late winter. Uh, that said, the, the herbs are typically harvested in the, in the fall and then dried, and just happens to be winter time when we make the Weekapal gruit. We also do uh, a beer every August with fresh-picked heather flowers. Um, it, it's just called heather ale. Um, so I think just to, to split the two up uh, every six months uh, kind of works well for us. Um, so the question, uh, if, if we try and stay on topic, is how does this beer actually express terroir? Um, the grains that are used, uh, a large proportion of the grains were grown in Massachusetts. Uh, there's malted barley, but there's also malted wheat. There's rye, there's oats. Um, all of them were grown organically by some small farmers in Massachusetts. And uh, Western Mass now has a great little company called Valley Malt one of the first micro-maltings in North America. And uh, we've been working very closely with them since their inception and uh, try and use, uh, if not 100%, then a sig significant proportion of their, uh, their grains in almost every beer that we're making uh, these days. And it's, it's a great way to support and, uh, and reinvigorate local farming. Um, the grains themselves are going to taste a little bit different. It, it can be hard, but it's, it's only as hard as tasting a French Chablis and believing that you really get a whole lot of, of chalk from the, from, the, uh, from the rock layers on, on which the, the vines are grown. Um, you know, if you look for it, it's there. If you're not paying attention to it, it's, it's easy to skip. As long as you're enjoying the beer, we're not really attempting to, to force you to believe something. We're, we're just trying to, to coax, I think, the idea of, uh, of some, some further expressions of, uh, of these, these characteristics through the beer. Um, another way that this beer expresses terroir is that uh, almost all of the herbs used were also grown in eastern or western Massachusetts. Uh, a lot of them I've actually grown myself. Uh, the, the same friend who is silly enough to let me ferment wine in a cabin in his, uh, in his back 40 in the woods uh, also owns uh, on the same piece of property some wetlands that were actually being overtaken by a lot of invasive species. Tons of skunk cabbage and really all kinds of other nasty stuff, and this, this really beautiful bog was being choked out. Uh, about four years ago, we decided that we were going to try and save the bog, and we did so by planting a lot of the herbs, uh, particularly sweet gale, that are native to North Atlantic coastal regions. They grow really well in New England. They grow really well in the British Isles, all along coastal Scandinavia. Uh, and because they live in, in wetlands and they, they are really good at repelling invasive species, we thought that herbs like the sweet gale, uh, the nettles, which you shouldn't have to plant anywhere, uh, but we still did, uh, the, the Labrador tea, some, some heather plants, we planted them all uh, in the, the, the more wet or the less wet areas after, uh, after digging out a lot of these, uh, these invasives and, and skunk cabbage and whatnot. Uh, so it's kind of fun to be doing something that allows us to restore some land and, uh, and kind of maintain it in its pristine condition, but also to be able to sustainably, end of summer every year or early fall, walk through in our, uh, in our waders 
and just pick leaves from, from all of these bushes that we then bring home, dry in, uh, in a really cheesy herb dryer setup that we made with a refrigerator box and some netting and a fan, but it works. Um, and then whenever we're ready to use them throughout the, the year, they're preserved. So uh, you know, we actually use quite a number of these herbs in a lot of different beers that we make at the brew pub. I should say Cambridge Brewing Company is a brewery and restaurant uh, where we do a lot of single small batches of beer on a regular basis. So if you're there to visit us one month and have 10 beers you enjoy, a month later, five of those will be something completely different. So we get to have a lot of fun. Uh, we really focus on the creative aspect of beer production. Um, we do make amber ales, pale ales, golden ales, stouts, and, and the traditional beers. But where we really have fun is, uh, is when we have the opportunity to get as crazy as we feel like it. So what, uh, what did you guys feel about the pairing with the, uh, the Tolman and the Gruet? Everybody agree that it was nice to have something a little cleaner instead of something that, that was a little clashy? Excellent. Yes, okay. question. Yes. Um, you mentioned the beer. Uh-huh. Should I start over or no? All right. You mentioned aging the beer. Yes. I'm wondering if you can speak to the aging process and what role, if any, the herbs play as a preservative as opposed to hops, which would break down. Great question. Um, they play the exact same role. They add bitterness to offset the residual sweetness. And uh, all of these herbs have been used for hundreds, if not thousands, of years because they were known to be bacteriostatic. Uh, thousand years ago they didn't have the term bacteriostatic of course but they knew that when you used certain herbs the beer not only tasted a little better but that it also kept very well um, there are certainly plenty of people in the beer world who will argue that hops are essentially nature's perfect beer ingredient for uses as, as a bittering agent as a as an aromatizer and as a preservative um, but one thing that most other herbs have going for them is that bitter herbs are, are typically just bitter, whereas hops require a lot of energy because the, the bittering compounds in them uh, are, are really intense, strong oil that needs to be boiled uh, in order to be extracted into the beer. So in terms of energy efficiency, using an herb that's already bitter, uh, just like a tea and, and dunking it in there, kind of saves a lot of time and energy and, and gets the same effect. So these do not need to be boiled, these herbs, in the process? No, they are boiled. They are boiled. But in the case of, uh, of a hopped beer where you're boiling for an hour and a half, if you take a very bitter herb like wormwood and add it to the beer in, for all of five minutes, you're going to get a very intense bitterness from that herb. So let's, uh, let's move on to the second beer, and we'll obviously continue jumping back and forth in and out of the conversation. Um, the next beer that we're going to enjoy is... Okay. We're going to do the Red God next, and that's paired with the Cabot Clothbound Cheddar, which is uh, hopefully in the 6 o'clock position on your plate. It's the, the hardest cheese on the plate. It looks almost like a, a pecorino. It should have the, uh, the Marcona almonds sprinkled next to it as well. Oh, no. No, we were starting at the top, but that's okay. Because it's still beer and it's still cheese, it's still going to be lovely. So Red God is, uh, is our latest beer. It's uh, an Imperial Red, or uh, 
Uh, you could consider it just a, a red double IPA. Very strong, very, uh, very rich, very malty, but with a ton of hop character to it as well. This is a uh, great beer to enjoy in this particular glass, especially as you, you swirl it, uh, nose the glass, uh, kind of hold it in the palm of your hand so it warms up as you're enjoying it. Because a lot of the, uh, a lot of the hop characters, at first when the beer is, is just poured and is cold, it's really kind of resiny, uh, almost a little bit of a piney character to it. As it warms up, a lot more of the, the florals, some citrus, uh, some spice character, uh, is, is going to be released as well. You ladies don't like a walk in the pine forest or what? <laughs> or they just don't like licking trees while they walk. Oh, licking the, trees? The is forest. that what it is? You're <laughs> Does anybody lick trees here? <laughs> oh, the guys do. Okay. Question. So, the, uh, so this is paired with the Cabot cloth bound. We're, we're, we're jumping on the left side from the Weekapog Ruit down to the Red God, but the, the paired cheeses are immediately to the right. So the Cabot cloth bound is, uh, is sprinkled with some Marcona almonds, and it's a, a long triangular wedge, kind of hard. It looks like a, uh, a pecorino. So this beer is, is relatively straightforward. Um, we're, we're getting out of the, the Gruet phase and we're getting back into what we now think of in modern times as, as traditional beer. Uh, a lot of malt, a lot of hops. Uh, again, we've got a lot of local grains expressing, uh, expressing the idea of terroir. Uh, we also have a yeast strain that we've been using that's just, you could consider it an American ale yeast or an English ale yeast. Um, this beer gives me the, the opportunity to talk a little bit about mutation and how that affects terroir, because this is the yeast strain that we've been using since we opened Cambridge Brewing Company 23 years ago. Um, so yeast, as everybody should know from, uh, from 10th grade uh, biology class, I think, uh, yeast cells are a fungus, they're a single-celled organism, and we happen to love Saccharomyces cerevisiae because it's responsible for consuming carbohydrates, simple sugars, and transforming them into uh, carbon dioxide, which gives the beer its fizz, and uh, alcohol, obviously the cause of and solution to all mankind's problems. Um, so the beer itself, really, really, uh, really sweet and malty, a lot of caramel flavors that come from, uh, from some of the valley malt that's been uh, uh, kilned at a, at a nice high temperature after being malted, it's, it's basically uh, steeped and kilned a second time that allows kind of a mini mash or a little, a little mini starch conversion before a second roasting that makes the, uh, the grain really glassy and, and gives it a strong caramel flavor. Uh, the hops, as I mentioned, there's, there's like 10 different varietals, so I'm not going to go through all of them, uh, but obviously they're responsible for a pretty intense bitterness that comes a few seconds after you've swallowed the beer, but up front, uh, and more forward on your palate, they're what are providing uh, a lot of those piney flavors, resin, a little tree sap in a good way, I hope. Um, and also, again, as it warms up, some more floral characters, some, some grapefruit, uh, grapefruit peel, a little bit of citrus and, and spice, and, and some nice floral character that way. Um, but the yeast is, uh, is really fascinating to me, and, and my job 
really as a brewer is to essentially, aside from being a janitor, is to be a yeast farmer. Uh, as, as everybody should know, if you, if you tend to plant, and we'll assume for the sake of argument that a fungi is just the earliest form of plant, um, that uh, you know, if you give it a proper environment, give it all the food that it needs, the, the oxygen, the lack of oxygen at the right time, etc., that it'll perform well and consistently for you. Um, that said, they are probably the most mutable organism on the planet. A lot of scientists who are doing genetic research, uh, who are uh, working on cures for cancer and whatnot, are, are working with brewer's yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, because it's easy to taper with its genetic, tamper with its genetic code, it's easy to insert things and, and take things out, and then it's also easy to, uh, to force mutations on it and just see how quickly, because they reproduce so quickly, uh, how quickly those mutations are going to express so they can extrapolate out in their experiments in terms of how it'll affect uh, animals or, or people or the development of, uh, of medicines and such. So it's a fascinating organism. And, and most of that is, is well above my head. All, all I'm doing really is just giving them food and hoping they do their job. But they, they tend to really uh, get used to an environment. Um, we, uh, we're learning this at Cambridge Brewing Company because we've recently begun a bottling program, which we're enjoying the fruits of today. But we're doing that at a separate brewery. Um, we're, uh, we're, our little brew pub only makes uh, 10 U.S. barrels or 300 gallons of beer at a time, and we're blessed with uh, an extraordinary amount of success. We're always slammed. We can't make any more beer at our brew pub. So when we decided after 22 and a half years that we wanted to try and make a little bit more beer, package the beer, and make it available around the, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, we had to go elsewhere. And we weren't willing to take the $3 million plunge into our own production brewery um, because we'd never done it before. And we didn't really, I, I guess we could say we're commitment phobic. Uh, but $3 million is a lot to then say, oh, I don't actually like brewing this way. And then you're kind of stuck anyway. Um, so what we did was we talked to our friends who have a brewery about an hour north of Cambridge in Ipswich, Massachusetts. The brewery is called Mercury Brewing Company, uh, and I coincidentally volunteered there 20, 21 years ago as a grunt washing kegs and scrubbing floors to, uh, to get involved in the industry. Uh, now we're back there, and we worked on an arrangement with them where we rent their equipment. Um, it's a little different from what you may have heard of as a traditional contract setup where somebody says, here's our recipe, make me this much beer, package it, send it to the distributor, etc. Uh, what's different is that I'm a control freak, and it's important to me that I'm responsible for making my beer. So I go up on a regular basis to brew every single batch of beer. There's nobody touching the beer uh, unless it's me or I'm giving somebody direction to do so because I need their assistance. Um, but I'm there to brew. I'm up every day monitoring fermentations. I'm there to move it from the fermentation tank to the maturation tank. I'm there to harvest yeast to make successive batches of beer, and I'm there to package it. So it's mine. So if it sucks, it's my fault. <laughs> but, uh, but what's fascinating, as I, as I, uh, as I digress, is that the, uh, the yeast really, really gets into its environment. It really is used to certain sizes and, and shapes of, of the tanks that it's fermenting in, whether they're uh, old square slate tanks from, uh, from north of England or whether they're uh, cylinders with a cone at the bottom like you see in most breweries today in the United States uh, made out of stainless steel. 
the yeast really gets used to kind of doing its job under a certain set of circumstances, both volumetrically and, and geometrically. When we went up to Ipswich to brew and suddenly multiplied everything six times to make 60 barrels of beer instead of 10, we, we didn't have negative uh, issues with fermentations, but things took longer. Temperatures were a little harder to control. Things were a little less predictable. Um, and I'd like to be able to say that we've got a complete handle on that at this point, but we don't, and it's still a challenge. But uh, I think that, that that's a great challenge, and it's a lot of fun just to, to witness how this organism that you've been so familiar with for, for several decades now is just going to do something completely different because you've put it in a, a different set of circumstances. So another expression of terroir in the, in the, uh, in the case of, of the actual uh, organism responsible for the fermentation. Same thing happens in winemaking. Uh, winemakers, uh, in most cases, are adding yeast and they're selecting specific yeast strains that they're buying from a laboratory that specifically manufactures wine yeasts and brewing yeasts. Uh, it's, it's rarer and rarer to find uh, any kind of large-scale winemaker that's still doing 100% wild fermentation or off-the-bloom fermentation, meaning the, the, uh, the wild yeast that's actually clinging to the fruit when it's harvested. Uh, most winemakers in the world do not have their own vineyards. They're buying fruit from elsewhere and bringing it in and, and they're producing it. Um, off the top of my head, I can only think of two or three brewers in the world that are growing all of their grain and malting it and, and growing all of their hops. There are more and more that are doing some of that, uh, particularly because it's cool and we learn a lot more about what we're trying to, to create. Um, but on a, on a production scale, you know, everybody would need hundreds and hundreds of acres to be able to, to grow all of the ingredients that they need themselves. So it's simply not practical, uh, regardless of the size of your, your brewery. So uh, I want to take a second and talk about the Cabot cloth-bound cheddar because I think it's one of the most banging cheeses available. Um, so my friends at, uh, at Jasper Hill Cellars, uh, they live about three and a half hours north of me, way right up in the, uh, the northeast corner of Vermont. If you're looking at the map, they're a stone's throw from Canada. A uh, great couple of uh, guys, uh, two brothers, who uh, decided to... Uh, to move their families there, buy several hundred acres of an old farm and get it back in working order again. And, uh, and in order to try and turn a profit, they realized that just farming dairy cows wasn't gonna pay the mortgage. Um, they realized that there was, however, a great reward for investing time and, uh, and energy into a craft like cheese making. Um, so they started playing around with making a few different cheeses. Um, then uh, they had some other farmers in the area who were keen to, to get into the business as well of, uh, of producing cheeses. Jasper Hill realized that there really wasn't any infrastructure for these extremely small artisanal cheese, cheese makers to actually get their cheese to market beyond the farmer's market down the hill a couple miles away. Uh, so they decided to take it upon themselves to, uh, to do something that I find truly incredible which is they blasted into the granite and, and bedrock uh, in the mountain that's, that their farm is on, and they created these amazing caves. Uh, and it's, it's literally just carved out of, of the mountain. In fact, their logo on the back of the, uh, the handout, that kind of weird Indian head looking uh, uh, 
design is actually the, uh, the, the layout of their cellars with a main room and then each of the, the spokes on the headdress, if you will, is a separate room for aging a different type of cheese. Um, so, so all of a sudden they went from being cheesemakers, which they continue to do, to also being, uh, to being managers and distributors and they provide the aging facilities and the care to age a lot of these cheeses to proper maturity before they're released to the market. Uh, it's, it's a real incredible undertaking and it blows my mind every time I'm up there and it's just the coolest thing in the world to see as well. Because when we're talking about cheese, we're talking about fermentation. Uh, just as with beer, we're not using the exact same organisms, but we're, we're, we're taking grass, which is what makes beer as well as cheese, we're processing it, whether we're malting it and making beer, or whether we're feeding it to a cow and making milk, um, and then we're allowing each of those to ferment. Um, and the most important ingredient, in my opinion, for both of those processes and wine is people. There's always going to be a lot of natural spontaneous fermentation. Mix, mix anything with some kind of fermentable in it and it'll eventually turn into something, whether you want to ingest it or not. Um, but really it's the, the people who are involved, the craftspeople, the, the families that are trying to run these goat farms and sheep farms and, and, and dairy, cow dairy farms and, and just make a living in a, in a really traditional, wonderful way. Uh, same as a lot of the smaller brewers, whether they're located in a city or whether they're located out on a, on a farm somewhere. Um, they're, they're just trying to create something in, uh, in an age where our society has gotten away from using our hands to make things. So it's certainly, in my opinion, as a craftsperson, worthy of, uh, of support. And I think we do a great job by making uh, things that people want to consume anyway. So it sells itself. Um, the, uh, the Cabot Clothbound is uh, a cheese that's produced by the Cabot Creamery, which I'm sure everybody has seen in the supermarkets down here. They're actually a really, really huge dairy farm and cheese production uh, facility. And they do milk and butter and all kinds of stuff. Uh, they went to Matthias at Jasper Hill a few years ago and said, we want to actually make something that isn't just a, a processed cheddar cheese. We want to make something truly traditional, but we don't have the facilities and we can't afford any kind of cross-contamination, et cetera, et cetera. What if we provide the base cheese and then you basically uh, nurture it through to its, its final form? So at Jasper Hill, it's, it's pressed into its molds uh, it's wrapped in, uh, in muslin. It's uh, put on these, these shelves that are, they have to be 40 feet tall, but they're, they're caves uh, just about a, a foot above one another. And these big 40 pound wheels are taken out and rotated and flipped and brushed. All of this is done sometimes two, if not three times a day, just to care for this cheese to make a real traditional classic English cheddar. Uh, it's a little harder, a little more flaky than uh, than a lot of people are used to, but I think that brings out a real great rich buttery character and some nuts, which I think is, is really accentuated by the, uh, the nuts on the side as well. Um, cheddar cheese and pale ale, I think, are one of the, the classic beer and cheese pairings. So by, by taking a, a beer like the Red God that's essentially an amped up pale ale, pale ale on steroids, if you will, with a lot more hops, a lot more malt, a lot more alcohol, you, you need a cheddar that's, that's also uh, amped up as much to, to pair with it. Everybody happy with that pairing? Yes? Awesome. I heard a couple no's. Who said no? 
Not a fan. Just keep in mind. Of the beer or the cheese or both? Of the beer, sure. Keep in mind that some things are an acquired taste. Absolutely. Just like caviar, sweet breads, anything that is a gourmet food, often gourmet foods are an acquired taste. And, and speaking very generally, because I don't want to offend any women in the room who happen to love nothing more than a super hoppy IPA, women more than men tend to be bitterness averse. Uh, women tend to prefer wine or cocktails to beer because cocktails have ten, or, uh, wine rather has tannin, uh, but that doesn't affect the palate in the same way as, as the lingering bitterness in most beers do. So if you grew up tasting beer in college or whatever going, oh, that's disgusting, I don't like it, in most cases, it's because the beer was terrible, but also, <laughs> but also because the, the bitterness itself was a little offensive to the palate. And we've basically taken that to the extreme with this beer. So you, you definitely don't hurt my feelings if there's a particular beer that you don't care for. We're not trying to be all things to all people with one particular product, which is what a lot of the, the large industrial breweries have been telling you for years and years through their expensive Super Bowl advertisements. Uh, we're trying to make a lot of different beers because we love beer and basically we make what we want to drink. And we're psyched to find out that there are plenty of people who share our taste in, in the majority of the things that we do. So we're gonna move on to the third beer, which is called Sgt. Pepper. This is a really fun one. I'm gonna guess that this will probably be the crowd favorite. Um, it's a really, really fun beer. Um, if I can, can toot my own horn a little bit, it did just win the gold medal at the World Beer Cup a month ago in San Diego. <laughs> Out of uh, 4,200 beers entered in the competition uh, in its category, which was uh, beers flavored with herbs and spices, there were 80-some entries, uh, and we were damn shocked to have uh, come out on top of uh, a sea of really fantastic beers. So, Sergeant Pepper is a, a Saison or a farmhouse ale. Does everybody know what a Saison is? I see lots of nodding heads, so I won't get into the idea of beer brewed by farmers for service during the summertime as a refreshing drink to the workers. Uh, what we've done to this beer, we fermented it with the same yeast strain, I should point out, as in the first beer, the Wikipaw Gruet. So a Belgian strain that contributes a lot of spiciness. Um, some notes of clove and coriander are, uh, are dominant in, uh, in the spicy character that the beer produces. On top of that, though, we've also added four different varieties of peppercorns. White, black, pink, and green pepper. I freaking love peppercorns. Me too. I think it's probably evident. Um, there, there are quite a number of beers that we've uh, produced through the years that I've used just a little bit here and there to add a little bit of complexity. Uh, in this one, I just said, screw it. This is going to be a peppercorn beer, make no mistake. And uh, uh, we, we first brewed it three years ago for our 20th anniversary party. And... Um, we, uh, we immediately had a, a fun hit on our hands. It's, we, we don't have the luxury like a lot of larger craft breweries do of a pilot system. So when we're going to make a beer, we just make it, and we're committed to 300 gallons, and if we F it up, we're in trouble. Luckily, we don't. We, we've got a 23-year-old streak of, of not effing things up. Um, but, uh, but this one, I feel like we nailed right out of the gates, and... Uh, and to explain that a little further, what I wanted was a, was, a, was a beer 
that had a noticeable little fruity, spicy character on the nose that on the palate also tasted like a nice, sharp, spicy, dry, peppery saison. And then after you've had a couple of sips, I wanted a little bit of warmth from the black peppercorns to creep up in the back of your palate. And then, bear with me, then after you had a couple more sips, I wanted it to get a little warmer, and I wanted you to go, oh shit, is this going to end badly? And then I wanted it to just level off, and I think we've done that. Gold? So I wanted to, I wanted to you know, I wanted to, to play with people a little bit with this beer and, uh, and cause maybe a little bit of concern, but then have that, that concern assuaged by the fact that it's not going to get any hotter. This is a phenomenal food beer. When we first made it, uh, our chef paired it with some handmade pepperdelli pasta and a rabbit stew that he made. And it was absurdly good. Like, oh my God, good. Uh, and, and just like any other thing that he could come up with, he's like, oh, well, I wonder if the pepper would go with this. I wonder if the pepper would go with that. Everything kind of works with the pepper. I happen to be a huge fan of a brewery in upstate New York called Amagang. I don't know if anybody's familiar with them. They make a saison called Hennepin. And there's, there's a, it's almost a running joke in the beer community when, when you're trying to talk about a beer pairing and somebody will say, oh, well, we're going to do this. What, what's going to pair with that Hennepin? Oh, well, we're going to do this. What, I, I wonder what could, Hennepin will pair with that just fine. Like, Hennepin's one of those wonderful, amazing, delicious beers that goes with almost everything. Um, and, I, and I wanted the Sgt. Pepper to be, to be our kind of go-to everything beer. And there's, there's very few things that we've come up with where it doesn't actually work. Um, it's, it's fun because if you're, if you're somebody who enjoys cooking, uh, if you want to make a, a, a steak au poivre, the, the au poivre is kind of already in the beer, so you don't have to worry about burning the, the, the soft tissue in your eyes when all of the, the oil in the peppercorn volatilizes as you're, you're cooking the steak. So there's, uh, there's some built-in safety measures in the beer too, I guess. Um, we've, we've paired this with a really cool cheese, and I notice now that we're actually off order, I didn't catch that, so I apologize. So the, the Sergeant Pepper is paired with the Weybridge, Sholton Valley Farms. That's the um, kind of obviously goat cheesy looking cheese, although it's actually a cow. This is the, uh, the shortest wedge with a nice rind and then a really pretty bright white center. Everybody with me? Really obvious uh, typo that I should have caught when I did these, so I apologize. Um, it's, uh, it's a cow's milk cheese, a really nice bloomy rind. Uh, I personally enjoy the rind. You're, you're welcome to cut it off if, if you don't like eating it. Um, some really nice earthy character, some nice creaminess. One thing that I like about this is what I like also uh, in pairing the, uh, the Sgt. Pepper with a lot of goat cheeses, whether it's a fresh chev or, or an aged goat cheese. These, these cheeses tend to be really pasty. They can kind of cling to the palate quite a bit. Uh, what's really great about uh, pairing it with this Argent Pepper is that it not only has some carbonation that helps kind of scrub that off, but that pepperiness also helps kind of clean the palate off of that paste so you don't get tired of, of a cheese that has a lot of creaminess to it. Uh, yeah, question? Yep, so it's this guy. And uh, it, sh it should be on top of the, the little square of quince paste. Everybody 
Good with the cheese and the, and the beer? Okay, great. Hi. When do we add the peppercorn was the, the question. Uh, and all of this is added during the boil, during beer production. Uh, so does everybody know the, the basics of beer and brewing production? Awesome. So the, the, the beer goes through uh, malting, then uh, or the, the grain goes through a malting process. It arrives at the brewery. It's crushed. It's mixed with hot water uh, at a certain temperatures to create what's called the mash. That creates a liquid infusion of the, uh, the fermentable sugars into the, uh, the water. It now becomes wort. It's removed from the solids, which go back to the farm to feed our, our friends, the cows and pigs and chickens, uh, which is a great closed circle for what would otherwise be a waste stream. Our farmer actually uses it primarily for compost and, uh, and a little bit of feed, um, but uh, he's uh, one of the people that believes that it makes better compost than, uh, than food. Um, the, uh, there have been a lot of studies done on dairy farmers who, uh, who feed their cows primarily spent grains from the brewing industry, uh, and it's been shown that they don't digest spent grains all that well. Uh, they're better at eating just straight raw grass rather than grass that's been turned into seed and then sprouted and kilned and malted and extracted and then sent back to them. Uh, if, uh, if you follow me, it increases their methane production, which increases uh, global warming, which is something that we're trying to, to avoid. Um, so uh, so we're, we're working closely with a, a farmer who's just kind of a hobbyist. He's got about 14 cows and a couple of pigs and some chickens outside of Boston. Uh, he's not a commercial farmer. He just does it because it reminds him of the old country growing up in Portugal where his family's from. Um, it's also great because every year he's got to slaughter a few of the animals and, uh, and he brings a lot of that back into the brewery to share with our staff. Uh, he's not a licensed farmer and the slaughtering is not done at an FDA regulated facility, blah de blah, so we can't put his cows on the menu, but uh, the, the staff is more than happy to, to divide it up and, and take them home. So becomes beer in solid form. Um, so the uh, so the Weybridge with the Sergeant Pepper, everybody keen on that? Are we developing any favorite pairings out of the three? This one? Yeah, I thought so. I think this beer with the first cheese is, you like the, this one with the, is better than with, with the, the Weybridge. For me, the, with the Weybridge, the pepper just kind of blows that cheese away. Oh, okay. What's, what's fun um, about eating things and, and enjoying uh, what, what we consume is that everybody's palate's different. I've met plenty of people who think that the Sgt. Pepper is just not very peppery at all, and why would I even call it that? I know, I'm, I'm rather shocked myself. But I also meet plenty, uh, plenty of people who go, holy crap, there's so much pepper in this, I can't possibly drink it. So we're, we all have different levels of sensitivities to different compounds, whether it's bitterness or, or certain aromas or, or flavors and things. And that's kind of what makes life cool, in my opinion. Um, so we're going to move on to our last beer. And this is where, if you can forgive me, shit's going to get a little weird. Uh, this is a beer called Cerise Cassé. And uh, to my knowledge, this beer has never made its way outside of the Boston area ever. Um, it's a pretty strange beer. 
I, I would recommend everybody take a second to, to dump and rinse their glasses, enjoy a little bit of water, stay hydrated. This is, uh, this is a, a true expression of terroir from the idea of spontaneous fermentation. And uh, because of that, we're fermenting with not just brewer's yeast, but also other bacteria that are going to intentionally make the beer sour. So anybody who so far has not been a huge beer fan and, uh, and enjoys wine more or enjoys uh, really tart fruit juices like pomegranate or whatever, this might be more to your liking. Some of you may very well be put off by this beer, and I apologize in advance, but I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> take, take a second, let it warm up, palm the glass, swirl it around a little bit. There's, there's a lot going on in the nose of this, so take a few seconds and, uh, and just smell the beer before you even take a sip. There, there are notes of, of cherry-like fruit. There's, there's a little bit of a funky barnyardy old barrel cellar kind of thing going on. There's some mustiness. Uh, a lot of characteristics that are similar to a traditional Lambic-style beer. If anybody is familiar with the Lambic beers from Belgium, like Cantillon and Frank Bone. After you've taken a couple of seconds and swirled and, and smelled the beer, then take a sip. And I warn you, it's going to seem, at first, pretty aggressively tart. There's going to be some puckering. Um, it might take a few sips for your palate to acclimate to that acidity, but by the second or third sip, it's going to be pretty mellow and, and pretty accessible. And this is paired with our, our last cheese, which hopefully is in the 3 o'clock position. And, uh, and this is the Jasper Hill Conundrum. Now, we took an intentional risk with this pairing because this was one of those times where I wanted to pit funky against funky. And uh, my, uh, my very good friend, Zoe Brickley, who uh, is one of the managers up at Jasper Hill, um, I absolutely love this woman because anytime I would say, hey, I'm thinking about including this beer, and, and some cheese in this tasting, what, what do you think would go well? She'd say, oh, well, let me just overnight you a box of some things. So on a regular basis over the last couple of months as we've been working on this salon, I would just have boxes of three or four different pieces of cheese show up at the brewery, and it was awesome. So now, to keep my habit of fulfilled, I, I need to constantly be doing events like this. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll run out of free cheese. I so, see a lot of smiles in this room. So this cheese is called Conundrum. It's not a cheese that Jasper Hill has released commercially yet. It's basically, uh, as cheesemakers, just like as, as uh, uh, contemporary craft brewers, there is a lot of experimentation that goes on. Um, it's, it's not, cheesemaking is, is not as simple as just taking a couple of classes and then saying, okay, I, I know all there is to, to know about making cheese. I'm going to now make cheese for a living. There's always a matter of experimentation, and like any good artisan, most, uh, any, any good artisan brewer, most artisan cheesemakers want something that, that is un a unique expression of them and their craft. So there's always a lot of experimentation. There's always a lot of taking an established cheese and giving it different washes or aging it for different periods of time and playing around and seeing what happens. Uh, conundrum is a cheese that as it warms and hangs out, and I, I intentionally wanted to save this one for last so that it would warm up, gets a little stinky. It gets a little runny on the plate as well. Um, 
like a like a telegio, it, uh, it the the rind is a little ammoniated, uh, which is actually something I don't particularly care for. But the the cheese in the middle I just think is awesome. Um, but uh, but this this beer is uh, is a beer that that is pretty aggressive on the palate. Um, all of the the acid, the the funky characters. Um, are something that, in theory, should be clashing up against all of the, the funk and, and weirdness in the conundrum. But I think that it's, it's not as much of a fist fight as it is uh, a couple of old friends who've maybe had a bit too much to drink and they're just shoulder punching a little bit in a <laughs> playful way. So uh, the, uh, the, the idea of terroir, getting back to the beer, uh, we, I mentioned spontaneous fermentation. It's something that uh, we've known just a few brewers in Belgium outside of Brussels have been doing for hundreds of years to, to produce Lambic-style beers. Um, also, uh, producers of a style of beer called Flemish Red or Flemish Brown Ales are known to be acidic. But there aren't that many intentionally sour beers in the world that are left, and it's been American craft brewers who have really revived a lot of different expressions, not only of traditional sour beers, but also attempted, like Cambridge Brewing Company with Cerise, to kind of create something completely unique. We don't describe this as a Lambic-type beer. We call it an American sour. Uh, what makes this beer uh, particularly interesting to me uh, as the brewer is that what we're drinking right now is a blend of beer that's between two and eight years old. And it's spent the entire time through its uh, primary and secondary fermentations uh, and all of the, the aging and blending and whatnot in a bunch of wine barrels in what's called a Solera system. Is anybody familiar with a Solera? A lot of hands, that's good. So a Solera system is traditionally used in the production of sherry uh, and other often strong fortified oxidized wines and some spirits. Uh, it's a great uh, sweetened red dessert wine called Banuels um, that I recommend people seek out. It's really delicious. Um, <laughs> But the, the idea came about with uh, Solera production in Jerez in Spain to basically make mature wine available at several different points throughout the year without having to just make a batch of wine, age it for 10 years, hope that it turned out like the batch from the year before. Uh, instead, they got into blending, and what they came up with is uh, a Solera system. And the Solera system refers not only to the entire system, but Solera also refers to the oldest set of barrels. So you have a set of barrels full of a liquid, in this case, Cerise Cassé, uh, that is never entirely emptied. Instead, once a year or several times a year, a proportion of the barrel is emptied, blended with the beer from the other barrels, often fractionally, to create the, the beer that the, uh, that the brewer wants to express at that time. And then the next youngest, or the next oldest, rather, barrels, no, next youngest, uh, which is called the criadera in Spanish. That's, that's literally the, the baby's cradle or the crib. Uh, the, the criadera number one uh, is then proportionately blended together and then topped up uh, into the Solera system. The second criadera tops up the first, the third tops up the second, and then fresh wine is added to the youngest set of barrels to go through its fermentation. And each set of barrels, we have uh, a different group of microorganisms uh, wild yeasts, bacteria, etc., lactic acid producers that contribute all that acidity, uh, 
wild beer yeasts that, uh, that ferment a lot of the, the carbohydrates that normal brewer's yeast wouldn't be able to consume. So you'll notice that despite being very fruity and seeming very sweet up front, it's an extremely dry beer. There's not a whole lot of like lip-smacking, caramely sweetness in the finish. Uh, so there's a lot going on, and it's all because of these microbes that have evolved over this eight-year program of producing this beer in the, uh, in the barrel cellar at Cambridge Brewing Company. It's only about uh, 12 barrels total, 60 gallons each. Uh, we only release about 200 gallons of it a year, uh, and it's a really fun pain in the ass to produce because <laughs> there's a huge time commitment that goes into blending this beer to, uh, to release it every year. Uh, some years we've decided that we really wanted it to be aggressively sour. Other years we've said, all right, maybe that's a little too much. We need to back it off and, and find some barrels that aren't as tart and, and use those for a majority of the beer. But blending and maintaining this um, seemed like a great idea at the time when I started it. And it involves more and more of a time commitment uh, every single year. But it's still worthwhile. It's a, it's a pretty unique system in, uh, in brewing in the United States or anywhere in the world. Um, you, you're finding a lot of brewers now that are, that are playing around with the idea of not only making sour beers, but aging them for extended periods, playing around with different blends and things, and, and really rediscovering uh, what was potentially a, a, a nearly dead art. Uh, there are less than a handful of lambic blenders in, uh, in Belgium these days that are, that are working. Uh, the, the, uh, the tradition used to be that there were brewers and then there were blenders. People would buy the, the, the sour beer from the lambic brewer, buy the barrel full, and each, uh, each blender would, uh, would blend in package and, and sell their own blends under their own labels. Kind of like what a lot of uh, Scotch whiskey distillers uh, do, or brokers, I think. Uh, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong there. Yeah, question. The question was, have I ever swabbed out and, and, uh, and figured out exactly what's in the barrel? Uh, we have done that, and we know that there's Saccharomyces and Britannomyces, which are both yeast strains. There are Lactobacilli and Pediococci, which are acid producers. Um, there's, there's tons of stuff in there. There's no way that we could possibly identify everything. Um, and I'm not a scientist, unfortunately. I don't have a science background, so I can make up some media in a little Petri dish and, and plate it out in, in, and uh, test for certain families of organisms. Uh, but we haven't gotten into any kind of like individual genetic testing for identification or whatever. Um, uh, I, I know that there are plenty of brewers who are doing exactly that. Um, and they're seeking to, to have that, that depth of knowledge and, and to uh, be able to control production. Uh, we tend to be a little more wild and free at Cambridge Brewing Company, and we like to let shit happen. Um, <laughs> and then figure it out as we go along. And 20 years into it, we're still figuring it out as we go along, uh, which is what keeps it exciting for us on a, on a daily basis. So yes. are you inducing the spontaneous fermentation just in the barrels, or do you use some kind of a cool ship system? Or? We've, we've done a lot of both over the years. Um, we don't have a cool ship. Um, Cool ship, for anybody who's not familiar with the term, refers to, uh, to a, uh, a very wide, shallow trough into which the, the boiled beer is pumped and then allowed to cool ambiently 
exposed to the air for a period of uh, a day or, or sometimes a few days until it reaches room temperature. And as it cools, it draws in ambient airborne microflora, wild yeast, bacteria, et cetera, and that's what ferments the beer. Uh, we've done that by using our mash tun, which we just leave the doors open on. We'll finish the boil, we'll pump into the mash tun, uh, we'll open up the doors to the restaurant and set up some fans to get a really good cross current of fresh Cambridge air. Um, I, I always get a big kick out of this because I'm worried when the, uh, to, to discover the time when the beer discovers sentience because we're surrounded in, in our area of East Cambridge by a lot of, uh, a lot of biotech and, uh, and pharma companies and things. So one of these days I'm going to talk to my beer and it's going to talk back and it's going to be either really, really cool or really, really strange. Well, it would be strange regardless. Um, so we've, we've done that. There have also been years where we've just said, you know, we don't want to do that. We're, we're, we're just going to go right into the barrel and allow the, uh, the resident flora, uh, the sediment in the, in the barrel to re-ferment. Sometimes we've done a combination of, of the two. So even with this particular beer that we produce uh, consistently recipe-wise, we still play around with the process a bit every single year. We have other beers that are 100% spontaneously fermented just through the cool ship. Uh, we have other beers that we've fermented by uh, sending them up into the mash tun slash cool ship uh, and then sent extra wort down into a bunch of empty barrels, just boiling wort right into the barrels, and we've left the, the plugs or the bungs off of them um, just so that as they cooled, they would draw in ambient air from the cellar. Uh, which is a dirt floor basement in a brewery with a uh, 120-year-old stone foundation and really old uh, wooden beams and stuff. So there's tons of critters living in there. Um, and, and to our surprise, it's, uh, it's actually, those beers are coming along really, really nicely. We've even released a, a couple of them uh, at the brew pub and at a few uh, beer festivals that we've done. Um, we did one that... Uh, uh, that we added a bunch of honey to on the third day of, uh, of resting in the cool ship. Um, it was uh, raw honey collected by a friend of mine who keeps bees right in Cambridge and Boston. So it came from within five miles of the brewery, also a great expression of, of local agriculture or terroir, if you will. Um, so there was some wild yeast that was probably concentrated in that honey as well. Uh, it was raw, unfiltered, unpasteurized, etc. cetera. Um, that took off like a rocket after we added the honey to it. And we didn't, we didn't dilute it out or anything, we just poured it in there. So what we imagine is over time, the, the surface area slowly dissolved into the, the beer wort and then fermented out. Uh, we called that beer Honey Badger off of the, the viral video that by the, the, the giggles I'm sure most of you have seen before. Um, and I don't know whether it's the name that made it so popular or the fact that the beer was really good, but we, we have no chance of keeping that beer on tap for more than an hour at a time before the keg kicks. We have one last question. Okay, great. Are you cultivating more and more casks so that you can uh, have a range of casks that you know you can get beer out of, of the quality that you want, over periods of time so that you can blend them? Yeah. Um, We've, we've got about 65, 66 different oak barrels. Um, the majority of them are used wine barrels, and when we get hold of them, they're, they're typically neutral for winemaking purposes, meaning the winemaker can't get oak flavors and tannins out of them. Um, primarily, I do that because they're the cheapest barrels I can find, and wooden barrels are really bloody expensive. 
uh, but also a lot of what I'm doing in cultivating these organisms is significantly extended aging. And for uh, beer to spend a year or two or eight years in a barrel uh, that was fresh, it would taste like a two by four when it came out. So we select barrels in terms of their neutrality. Uh, we do use some barrels uh, that we get from some distillers and we'll do you know, a bourbon barrel, imperial stout, etc. Uh, and those are really quite lovely. We'll usually do two turns of beer through those fresh spirit barrels, or occasionally if we get some fresh young wine barrels, uh, then we'll use that for a barley wine or something that we think would be really tasty. But then after we've turned some beer through it, uh, we're either intentionally inoculating or we're bringing it into the spontaneous barrel program. Uh, but we're, we're always on the hunt because we're always, like any winery, uh, getting rid of a few barrels every year and trying to bring in a few more. Okay, we've run out of time. Okay. Unfortunately, that went really fast, didn't it? Great. Well, I hope you all had a good time. Thank you very much. Thank you to Will Myers, and thank you all for coming. And we'll see you out on the floor. Thanks for listening to this Savor Salon. Craft Beer Radio is a mostly weekly beer podcast where we attempt to educate and entertain. If you haven't heard our podcast, we invite you to find us on iTunes or go to our website at craftbeerradio.com. Craft Beer Radio is released under the Creative Commons license. Please visit craftbeerradio.com for more information.